As we prepare to open the word, let's uh, pause once again to our, pray to our great God and give him thanks. Father, we thank you for the many things that you have done this week in our local church. We thank you, Lord, for your healing power, the, the testimony, the witness that has come to your faithfulness and goodness. Lord, thank you so much. And Lord, we are amazed when we read in your word that in times when we are faithless, you are faithful. Lord, when we are weak, you are strong. Lord, when the times come and they do come in our lives when we just can't pray, we know that you are interceding for us. Lord, you are a great God. You are a wonderful, faithful, loving God. And we give you thanks this morning. And now as we open your word together again, we pray that by your spirit you would come and minister. Lord, the people here need to hear not Pastor Brent's voice, but the voice of Jesus Christ. And I pray that your voice would go forward by your word and by your spirit this morning. So work in our lives, Lord, that we would be changed even as we go out the doors later on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning... I want to introduce you to a rather nervous man who lacked confidence, lacked self-confidence, a man who needed constant assurances from God concerning his calling. And his name was Gideon. Gideon was the fifth judge in Israel. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. Gideon was a very interesting man. He was a person who questioned out loud whether God was even on the scene for Israel during a time when the Midianite people were oppressing the Israelites. Is God even on the scene? Gideon wrestled with God. Gideon was a person who chafed at the prospect of God calling him to save Israel from the Midianites. Gideon had self-doubts. And when, when God commanded Gideon to go and tear down his father's idols, Gideon did that, but only under the cover of darkness since he feared his family, and he feared others who were in the town. There was a nervousness about Gideon. And Gideon was the one who, despite hearing God's expressed promise that he, Gideon, would, would save Israel, would be the human instrument to do that, he needed to be reassured twice with the fleece that indeed God would save Israel in that way. There's something about Gideon, I think, that resonates with many of us. Would you agree? Called by God, but having self-doubts, needing assurances, and being uncertain, being, being in fact overcautious. In a word, weak but nevertheless called by God into leadership. 
Now, as we mentioned, Gideon and his 10 men had gone out under the cover of darkness and they had broken down his father's altar uh, to Baal and they had broken down the Asherah that was beside it. And then in Judges 6, verse 32, Gideon is called Jerub Baal, Jerub Baal, which means let Baal contend against him. Gideon had won a victory over Baal in that moment, smashing the statue of Baal. And this is why he receives this name, Jerub Baal. Let Baal contend against him. Soon after receiving this new name, Gideon is clothed with the spirit of the Lord. And he then succeeds in gathering a great many followers from four of the tribes of Israel. What a tremendous encouragement this must have been to nervous, self-doubting, Gideon, to gain such a large following of people. Now to have this strong, unified body of Israelites following his lead, this must have been a great, I think, a great boost to Gideon's courage. We pick up the story of Gideon at Judges chapter 7. Then Jerub Baal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. Now, the last time in the text that the name Jerubbaal had been used was nine or 10 verses ago at chapter six, verse 32, just after that victory over Baal's idol. And the fact that this name gets used here again now at 7-1 might signal to us that he's about to win Another victory, perhaps. Let's see. So we've already mentioned that Gideon is a nervous type. Anyone a nervous type here this morning? Gideon is a nervous type. Pay attention to the name of this spring that he and the people are camped beside, the spring of Herod. Not the Herod in the New Testament, different spelling. But that word Herod comes from a Hebrew verb that means to tremble. And so that Gideon and his large group of people are camped at the spring of trembling. And we ask, who's trembling here? Is Gideon trembling? We're about to find out. Gideon and the people are camped out close to the camp of the Midianites. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morech in the valley. The Midianites were a people, a group of people who had descended from Abraham and Keturah. And as mentioned, at this point, the Midianites had been heavily oppressive, heavily oppressive toward the Israelites for a full seven years. The Midianites had come out in terrific numbers against Israel, and they had effectively been trying, listen, to starve Israel by taking Israel's crops and by seizing their pasture land and by confiscating Israelite animals. According to the initial verses in Judges chapter 6, the Israelites had been forced to flee into the caves because of this heavy 
seven-year oppression. And so now Gideon and the people are here at the spring of trembling, close to the Midianite camp. Gideon was a person who had lived under this terrible yoke of the Midianite oppression. Gideon had suffered it, and he had endured this trial along with his people. But boy, he must have been encouraged now with this significant throng of followers around him from the tribes of Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali. There was strength in these numbers. And there was the very real possibility that the numbers would just simply continue to grow and continue to swell so that then Israel would have essentially an unstoppable force to overcome the Midianites. Things were looking up. At this point, the Lord speaks up. And what the Lord says to Gideon is jarring, to say the least. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are with the, that are with you are, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Notice, Gideon, you have too many people, too many soldiers. Gideon, you have too many hands and feet in your camp to go against this oppressive group of Midianites. Too many. Now, pretend you're in the camp there, okay? You're watching Gideon. Can you see Gideon's brow furl up uh, in confusion here? Can you see his heart sink? Too many. When you go into battle against formidable numbers like the Midianites have, you can't have enough soldiers at the ready, getting ready to wage war against this oppressive enemy. Too many. Friends, we need to see here that the numerical value of soldiers was not the real issue for God. God's real issue gets expressed at the end of the verse. God says, people are too many, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. What was God's issue? It was this, that when Israel won this battle, which they would, because God promised that Midian would fall into Israel's hand. When they won the battle by using this mass of people that Gideon had assembled, then they would boast of their own ability to win their own battles. That was the issue that God had. The danger was that Israel would give their own great army the glory for the coming victory rather than giving the glory to God. God's issue was the way 
that Israel would interpret their victory. In fact, we could put it that way. It was the way that Israel would interpret their victory when they used that large number of people to win it. They would certainly give themselves the glory. Ah, look at what we have done rather than God. And my friends, in 2023, God knows that you and I have a tendency to steal his praise. As Dale Ralph Davis has put it, God knows that we have a tendency, quote, to glorify our own efforts, to trust in our own proven methods, to credit our own contributions, to think well of our own cleverness. And so Davis says this, God, listen to this, God frequently insists, that's not a too strong a word, he frequently insists that his people be reduced to utter helplessness, twinkle, so that they must recognize that their deliverance can only be chalked up to his power and his mercy. So let's watch how God's plan unfolds now for this battle against Midian. Verse three, God continues speaking to Gideon. God gets a lot of airtime in this passage. God says, now therefore, proclaim in the ear, here's what you do, proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So what's God doing? He's starting the process of whittling down this mass of people that he has already said are too many. And he's doing that by allowing the fearful and the trembling among them, who remember here are gathered at the spring of trembling. He's letting the fearful and trembling go home immediately, ditch out, get out of here. Now here we need to pause. I hope you're ready to do a little bit of math. Are you ready for some math this morning? I'm never ready for math, but here it is. So let's, let's pause and just do a little counting. So if Judges chapter 8, verse 10, is any indication, which I think it is for sure, Judges 8, 10, then Midian and their forces were 135,000 men. Okay, 135,000 men. When God says here at 7-3 that the fearful among Gideon's assembly can go home, the report then comes that 22,000 Israelites hightailed it out of there. They left, leaving 10,000. In other words, more than two-thirds of Gideon's troops head for home. So if we're counting right, Gideon has started with 32,000 men versus 135,000 men on the Midianite side. In other words, the Midianites had well over four times as many people to begin with. Israel had already been vastly outnumbered. What's the logical thing to do <laughs> in such a situation? The logical thing to do is to open up more recruitment stations, right? And get more recruits draft more people. But now, notice, friends, now by God's reduction scheme, 
Israel has been drastically reduced to only 10,000 men, meaning, just so we can get this, meaning that suddenly the Midianites have 13.5 times the people that Israel has. The Midianites outnumber Israel by 125,000. And as Dan Block has put it, this massive sudden reduction It's kind of come out of nowhere. This must have been both shocking and dismaying to Gideon. Shocking and dismaying. Bear in mind again, friends, we've already pointed out a a few things about Gideon's character. Gideon was a nervous type. It's established in the text. He was a nervous type who needed reassurances. He doubted himself. Certainly, I think this 22,000 person reduction in his entourage, this is not going to help him in terms of his confidence. And so we asked the question, was Gideon now trembling at the spring of trembling? It's great mass of 22,000 people walk away because of their fear. We wonder, was Gideon also contemplating just joining them? <laughs> Lord, you go ahead, you find another leader, because I'm out, right? We wonder how he felt at this moment, what kinds of things were racing through his mind. And then we get verse four. Gideon decides to stick around and things get even weirder for him. (laughs) Notice this. God looks at the 10,000 now and he says, ah, the people are still too many. As if a reduction of 22,000 people wasn't enough. Still too many. I I imagine here Gideon's heart is beginning to pound and his ears are getting all red and hot and his nerves are on. What is God up to here? Like, seriously, what? God gives a fresh set of instructions to Gideon. He says... Listen to this. Take all these 10,000 people down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And actually, the word in the original Hebrew is better translated as the word refine. I will refine them for you there. God is going to do what? He's going to sift the people. He's going to refine the number of people even more. He says to Gideon, anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone to whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, guess what? They shall not (laughs) go. Verse five. Suddenly, I'm not getting any change here, tech people. Doesn't like verse five. Oh, the suspense is killing us, isn't it? (laughs) There it is. Okay. (laughs) So he, Gideon, brought the people down to the water. Notice the obedience in Gideon. And the Lord said to Gideon, now notice this. Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. Now, now, if I were Gideon, I think I would be completely and utterly disoriented 
at this point in time. Lord, Lord, first you come and you claim that I have too many people when I thought the whole point in battle was to have an abundance of people fighting. And then, and then suddenly you reduce our numbers to a third of what they were. And, and now you want me to organize this bizarre drinking test. Well, friends, we think here of Isaiah 55, 8, where we're told that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. That our ways are not God's ways. And I think it couldn't be any more true than right here. There is an oddness to this drinking test. Old Testament scholars aren't in agreement as to how to interpret the details of this odd test. I'll chime in and I'll give you my interpretation of this. So my understanding is this, Gideon is going to end up with two groups of people, okay? The first group will be those who approach the edge of the water, imagine approaching the edge of the water while standing up, they reach down into the water to gather water with their hands and they lift it up to their face and they lap it up. The second group will be those who kneel down beside the water, who bend over the water to drink. So Gideon's gonna end up with one group, the lappers. It's actually what Old Testament scholars call them. <laughs> the lappers standing and the, the second group, the kneelers. And we get, we get the results of this very strange drinking test in the next verse, verse six. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people, how many are rest? 9,700, because there were 10,000 here. The other 9,700 of the 10,000 knelt down to drink water. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Gideon, ah, good, we're done. <laughs> With the 300 men who lapped, 300 men, I will do what? I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. And, and naturally, we look at this text and the question comes up, why was it that the 300 lapping men were chosen over the 9,700 kneeling men? Was it some sort of virtuous character trait in the 300 that set them apart from the others. And, and the short answer, friends, is that we just don't know for any certainty why God chose these particular 300 men. The crucial thing for us to bear in mind, and I want you to listen, the crucial thing for us to bear in mind is the whole motivation in God at this moment. In verse two, God's concern had been that the people would give glory to themselves, right? When they won this victory, instead of recognizing him as the victor. So I don't think that God is hand selecting the 300 most virtuous or the 300 most alert men here. In fact, I think he may be doing the opposite the less able Gideon and his army are, the more glory 
will go to God when they win this thing. So perhaps the 300 men are chosen here, perhaps since they are least prepared, since they are least alert, since they are least battle ready. But whatever the case, friends, however we want to interpret this, the bare fact is this, that God has purposely whittled down Israel's fighting forces from 32,000 to 300. And he's done this on purpose. He's done it on purpose. So we have 135,000 on the Midianite side and now 300 on the Israelite side. The Midianites now have 440 times the men that Israel has, but God, the divine warrior, is gonna do what? He's gonna save Israel. He's gonna give the Midianites into Israel's hands, even with these ridiculous, and they are ridiculous, odds. Now, in the very same moment, what is God doing? God is at work in Gideon's life, yes? What is God doing for Gideon here? Well, look at that number, put your eyes on that number 300 again. What's God doing here? <laughs> Nothing less than this. He is radically stripping away Gideon's self-confidence. Amen? He's radically stripping away Gideon's self-confidence in self. God is forcing Gideon to trust in him. Gideon's eyes are being open wide right now at this moment to see that there's nothing else he can do but rely on God. God is exposing Gideon's fear for Gideon's good and for God's glory. And friends, God will do this for us as well. God will sometimes purposely strip away our self-constructed confidences and crutches to bring us to the place of sheer dependence on him. It's where he wants us to be. Verses eight and nine. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. There's these trumpets again. We saw them last week too. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him. Notice him, Gideon, not them, but him, because it's focused on Gideon and his nervousness and his fear. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it <laughs> into your hand. Again, friends, the battle is whose? The Lord's. And here the Lord is voicing the outcome of a battle that hasn't even happened yet. Midian will indeed be given into the hand of Israel. God has already won this victory. But I want you to now notice the sweetness of our God in verse 10. On the very eve of this battle, where God has reduced Israel's forces to 300 against 132,000, God says to Gideon, but if you are afraid, 
to go down, Gideon. If, it, it, Gideon, if you're trembling, as you think of starting this battle with your 300 men, then here's what you do. Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So, so notice this, friends, very sweetly, yes? Very compassionately, God knows that Gideon is no hardened, battle-ready, iron-willed sort of commander, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it. God knows that Gideon is no General Patton and John Wayne rolled up into one. God knows that Gideon is fearful. Isn't this an encouraging lesson for us here in Scripture that God, listen, mark it, God uses fearful people to do great things. He uses uncertain people, people like Gideon. Again, I'm quoting Dale Ralph Davis here a lot, but he says so much great stuff on this text. He says, the Lord knows the fears of his servant, knows how scared we can be in our various circumstances. God is not strict or harsh when we tremble. He does not ridicule us for our fears. He never mocks us because we are fragile. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? So my friends, very sweetly, with great compassion, God gives Gideon this opportunity to have his hands strengthened, to grow in confidence, to grow in assurance before the battle, to have his fears diminish, and Gideon takes God up on this opportunity, we notice. It indicates very clearly, I think, that Gideon was indeed fearful, God gives him the opportunity, and Gideon runs with it. Then he went down, yes he did, with Pura his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east, this is a huge group of people, they lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So the description here of this massiveness of the, the opposing forces is meant to heighten our appreciation of the danger here, right? Gideon and his little puny 300-man army facing this mountain of people. By sight, this is truly an impossible task to win this battle. Gideon and his men have to proceed by faith. Just as the little increasingly marginalized church of Jesus Christ faces what seems sometimes, I think, like insurmountable challenges from the wider culture and from Satan himself, but God remains on his throne fighting for his people. We must live by faith and not by sight, dear people of God. Now, earlier in verse 11, God had already predicted that Gideon and Pura would hear a conversation in the Midianite camp. He'd already said that 
You're going to go and you're going to hear what they say. And now watch this as God brings, listen to this, he brings these two men to the exact spot in this massive Midianite camp, to the exact spot at exactly the right time to overhear the, the conversation that he'd already predicted. God sovereignly orchestrates all of it. Isn't this remarkable? Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And this guy said to his buddy, hey, I dreamed a dream. And behold, this might sound kind of weird to you, but a cake of barley in this dream, it's kind of strange, this cake of barley tumbled into the camp of Midian, into our camp. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, oh, buddy, I know exactly what your dream means. This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Probably said with some nervous energy to match Gideon's nervousness. Notice, friends, that these Midianite guys, they've already heard of Gideon. His reputation preceded him somehow. And what God has, has done here is he's orchestrated, listen, he's orchestrated this dream in the one guy that would then be discussed with the other guy, the net effect of which was to bring a sense of dread into the Midianite camp. God had done this. And God brought Gideon and Purah here to this exact place to listen to this exact conversation in order to do what? In order to bolster Gideon's faith. Isn't God incredibly amazing? Yes? And Gideon's faith is indeed bolstered. Verse 15, listen. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he did what? He worshipped. Yes! Worship is the immediate priority for getting here, not taking out a map and trying to strategize, draw up battle plans. Worship. And he returned to the camp of Israel, and now, with fresh found confidence, Gideon said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Gideon now knows, friends, that the impossible is about to happen by the hand of God. Well, verses 16 through 22 give us the planning, the execution of the battle itself. And to summarize these verses, Gideon rises to the occasion here. He really does. He comes up with this ingenious plan. And the ingenious plan is to go out at night with the 300 men, at night, under the cover of darkness. Each of them are going to have three items in hand, a trumpet, <laughs> an empty jar and a torch inside the jar. So 300 trumpets, 300 jars, 300 torches. Again, notice, friends, there's no mention here, is there, of swords or spears or any other conventional weapons. They are to draw near the Midianite camp only armed with these jars, trumpets, and torches. And at the right time, 
just at the changing of the guard in the Midianite camp, there has, is to be a shout that goes out in the dark from the Israelites. Their trumpets are to blast away. Imagine 300 trumpets, this collective loud noise, and their jars are to be smashed, 300 jars smashing, and their torches are to light up the night sky. Gideon is banking on what? He's banking on the terror of the Midianites as they are woken up very suddenly. Imagine coming, to, coming into uh, reality, coming out of your sleep to this noise. They're woken up very suddenly to this clamor, to the sound of 300 trumpets blasting, the presence of 300 torches. In the darkness, the Midianites are not gonna have any way of knowing that only 300 men are present they will assume that a gigantic force of men is now upon them. And the plan works. I want us to notice just a couple of things in these verses. First of all, come with me to verse 21 and notice the contrast between the Israelite 300 and the Midianites. Every man, that is every man on the Israelite side, did what? stood in his place with a torch around the camp. The Israelites just stood there holding their torches. But then on the side of the Midianites, we're told, listen to all these action verbs, all the army ran, they cried out, and they fled. The only thing that Israel has to do is just stand there as bedlam breaks out in the Midianite camp. There's no record here of Israel going on the offensive with swords or spears. They simply stood there and let Midian devolve into panic and into chaos. My friends, God is a warrior. And then verse 22, I want you to notice this. When they blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade against and against all the army. Notice, friends, the direct activity of the divine warrior here. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord made sure that the Midianite swords are drawn against fellow Midianite Soldiers, the soldiers not knowing in the dark who was for them and who was against them and all this chaos with all these people running around everywhere and in an attempt to protect themselves, these Midianites who had been such heavy oppressors of the Israelites, now they wield their swords and they stab in the air in all directions, killing their own. Only a remnant of the Midianite army survived and they hightailed it out of there. They ran, verse 22, to the end of the chapter, reports the chase scene. It's like an early Starsky and Hutch kind of thing. Israel's pursuing the Midianites and then they eventually capture and they execute two of the Midianite princes. Now let's wind this up. Something I failed to mention this morning and I'll mention it now, is this. That the seven years of Midianite oppression that led up to Gideon's battle had been brought on 
because of Israel's sin against God. This whole mess. At the beginning of Judges 6, we read that the people of Israel had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And it was a terrible seven years for Israel. Verse 6 of that same chapter says that Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Brought very low. And the bringing low caused them to do what? To cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord helped them, didn't he? By winning this against all odds victory that brought glory to himself. Now friends, you and I here today listening online, you and I have done evil in the sight of the Lord. Every one of us has done evil in the sight of the Lord. We are sinners ourselves before the Lord, and we are faced with a far greater, more formidable, formidable enemy than Midian. We are faced with the enemy, we mention it often from this pulpit, the, the enemy of sin, death, and the devil. And facing sin, death, and the devil, we are completely weak and completely helpless. All we can do is cry out to God for his help. We are brought very low, we need to understand that, in the face of our enemy. And how does God answer our cry? God answers our cry by identifying himself with our weakness. God sends his son who makes himself nothing, who humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How does God answer our cry of being brought low because of sin, death, and the devil by being brought low himself for us as our substitute to atone for our sins on the cross? To quote the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Jesus was crucified in weakness. But as Paul also says in his first letter to the Corinthians, the weakness of God is stronger than men. <laughs> the weakness of the cross and the resurrection that followed the cross was in fact what? It was God's mighty power. It was God's D-Day on sin, death, and the devil. God took, listen, he took the fierce, intimidating, Midian-like, Midianite-like enemy that we faced, and as we were utterly weak with our 300 men, so to speak, God overcame, and he won the victory for us in the weakness of the cross. My friends, I hope your hearts are full of worship as I say, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The walls around Jericho, he has destroyed. The Midianite army has been routed. Sin, death, and the devil have been defeated, amen? amen. And so this week, in your waking up, 
and in your walking around, moving about, your lying down, may all of it be a concert of praise, a concert of praise to our God who fights victoriously for his people. Go forth this week in his strength and in his life-giving victory, and won't you tell someone about his greatness? Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we thank you for you are the mighty victor. You are the mighty king. You are the one, Lord, who has won the battle. The battle is yours. We praise you because we know you. We are your people. As believers, we are united to you, Lord. Who can be against us when you are for us? And so I pray, Lord, for each and every person here today that, that each of us, Lord, would walk into our week with fresh courage, no matter what we are facing, knowing that you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.